Hello, everybody, and welcome to Care Talk. My name is Laura Packard, and I am the executive director of Healthcare Voter, but I'm also a cancer survivor, so I have personal experience going through the American healthcare system, too. Uh, on our show, we answer your questions and we talk about general uh, healthcare issues in America. Uh, so please, if you have questions, call or text them in and we will answer them on a future show. Uh, so wanted to start today's show by uh, noting that open enrollment for the Affordable Care Act is over for now in most states, but if you qualify for a special enrollment period, you can always enroll. And Medicare open enrollment is also over, but you're eligible to enroll for the first time uh, three months before uh, and three months after your 65th birthday. And special enrollment periods apply for Medicare as well. And Medicaid and other programs uh, have uh, enrollment for health insurance year round. So uh, I'd like to welcome Zoid Finch from Health Sherpa to tell us a little bit about how open enrollment is going on, has gone on so far for the Affordable Care Act. Yeah, no problem. Um, so this open enrollment has been really great. Um, we are still waiting on some of the final data from CMS. Um, so we don't know exactly how many people overall got enrolled, but I can let you know that at Health Sherpa, um, we enrolled over 3 million people. Um, and so we are expecting upwards of um, 10 million or even more from, you know, healthcare.gov, as well as from all of the SBM states. Um, and so that is just some of our um, kind of preliminary data. We do have a blog post up on Health Sherpa that breaks down some of the enrollments by state. Um, and so if you are interested in that data, um, you can head over to uh, the Health Sherpa blog to check that out. So the good news is that more Americans uh, than ever are getting health insurance uh, through the Affordable Care Act. Uh, and our first question today is from Meredith in Georgia. Um, they want to know, I have a question regarding getting a mammogram with no insurance. Uh, Zoid, what suggestions would you give them? Yeah, so I'm kind of assuming that this question um, is largely about, you know, getting a um, free or low cost mammogram without insurance. Certainly you can self-pay to get a mammogram, but that could be very expensive. Um, so there are a few different places, um, directories online where you can search for free and sliding scale health clinics. Um, so there's um, findahealthcenter.hrsa.gov, um, which we can um, include on our website as well. And those are um, health centers um, run by HHS. And then there is also the National Association of Free and Charitable Clinics. Um, and so those are going to be more private nonprofits. Um, but in both cases, you'll be able to search for free or low cost clinics in your area. Um, and something to note about that is that, you know, the free or charitable clinics, low cost clinics, they might not do mammograms on site. However, they often do have relationships with other doctors and specialists in the area and they can refer you to those specialists often for a reduced rate. So even if it, their website doesn't say that they do mammograms, it's always worth checking them out. Um, another one to check out is Planned Parenthood. Um, I did look in your location in Georgia and it didn't look like there were any Planned Parenthoods um, very close to you, but I don't know exactly where you live. So that's also another one worth checking out. And for anyone else who is wondering, 
um, they often provide a lot of um, healthcare, such as uh, mammograms. And yeah, so th those are my, my main points of advice. About and Diane? Yeah, what I'd love to just piggyback on Zoid's point about um, these health centers run by HHS. I think um, these are federally qualified health centers, and there are literally, I think, 14,000 sites around the country. Many people don't know about them, but they provide free and low-cost primary care services, a full range of primary care services, including sometimes even dental care. Um, depending upon your income. So um, definitely check those out as a way to get for your low-cost care. Um, they provide really high-quality care, and they are, um, believe it or not, 100% government-run. Sanjeev, do you have anything to add there? No, these were all great resources, and um, I totally agree with um, you know being in touch, especially with your local health department, to um, learn more about local resources and what's available. Great, and uh, welcome, Diane Archer from Just Care and Social Security Works. I uh, have a question for you from Melanie. Can we get Medicare capped at 10% of what you get? Up to $172 a month now takes a huge chunk. Most people already don't get a supplemental plan because the combined amount is way too much and paying for Part D for prescriptions. For me, it's over $300 a month, and I'm a healthy 68-year-old uh, with no diabetes or heart conditions or cancer history. I really never have to go to the doctors except dentists, which, of course, isn't covered by any of my health plans. Our medical system needs overhauling now. Diane, what do you think? Cannot agree with you more, Melanie. Um, it is really due time. We had um, an expanded and improved Medicare program for everyone. It's the most cost-effective way to deliver care. Um, but right now, Medicare is quite costly. Um, it only covers about half of your total health care costs, which is the beginning of the problem. Um, and as you say, the premium, the monthly premium of $170, I think, in 10 cents is just enormous. Um, you can sometimes get a reduced premium and reduced co-pays either by qualifying for Medicaid or for, by qualifying for a Medicare savings program, which is um, through the Medicaid office. But basically, if your income is you know, limited and your assets are limited, Medicare will reduce the cost of your premiums and co-insurance. In addition, even with your prescription drug costs, there's a program called Extra Help, and that program can help with your prescription drug costs. So for now, that's what's available. In addition to care through these health centers in your in communities across the country that are operated by the federal government, federally qualified health centers, um, and other um, resources that um, you can find at the Care Talk website and at justcareusa.org. Um, we are fighting really hard, though, to get Congress to pick up more of Medicare's uh, costs so that people aren't struggling to get the health care they need. It has become a huge barrier to care, the out-of-pocket costs in Medicare, and that has. Absolutely. And we have a question from Kit wondering, is President Biden planning to continue Trump's plans to privatize the Medicare program using DCEs? Diane? Yeah, so that is an excellent question, and we don't know the answer yet. Um, they slowed the program down, 
And right now, um, it is still in effect. And for those listeners who um, aren't aware, what's happened is that the Trump administration put in place a plan to have investors and insurers, quote unquote, manage your care in the traditional Medicare program. We're not talking about the Medicare Advantage side, which is already run by insurers, but in the government administered side, they are, quote unquote, testing having insurers and investors manage your care. And we think that is not a test worth doing. We've already seen in Medicare Advantage um, wide scale inappropriate delays and denials of care for people who need it most. Um, the Office of the Inspector General found that. Um, and it's a problem. And what we also see is that the Medicare Advantage plans are in it, you know, first and foremost, to deliver profits to their shareholders. And that means um, keeping the money that the government gives them as much as possible and not spending it on your care when you need it. And that's why high um, numbers of people who get sick while they're in Medicare Advantage want to move over to traditional Medicare. And so now we have this problem in traditional Medicare. Not only do you have to buy supplemental coverage, which is often not available to you, um, once you've been in Medicare Advantage, you can be locked out. And you need that to minimize your costs in traditional Medicare um, and limit and cap them since traditional Medicare doesn't have an out-of-pocket cap. But now you have to worry that if you're in traditional Medicare, that an insurer or an investor might be controlling the care you get, when you get it, who gets you that care. And you do still have rights to go to any doctor in America if you're in traditional Medicare and have Medicare cover your care. But the uh, direct contracting entities that Trump has put in place um, could limit that care. Now, just so everybody knows, it's very limited, the program right now. There are probably between 300,000 and a million people in it. It's not small. It's big. It's too big from our perspective. It should go away from our perspective. And we are told that um, the administration is looking at limiting it more. We don't know if that's going to happen. We are hopeful, though, because this is not an experiment that helps older and disabled people with Medicare. It's an experiment that helps Wall Street. But that's our problem because Wall Street wants it and Wall Street has money and power at, to get what it wants. And so that's the fight ahead of us now. And if you're opposed to this, please, everyone, call your member of Congress, call the White House, and let them know that they should end the direct contracting experiment. Thanks, Diane. Uh, and today we have a special guest, Dr. Sanjeev Sriram, who you may know as Dr. America. And he's going to be talking about uh, health disparities in the American healthcare system. Uh, there's a quote from Dr. King that a lot of health justice activists like to share. Of all the forms of inequality, injustice in healthcare is the most shocking and inhumane. And uh, he'll be talking more about that and what we can do about it. Dr. Yeah. America. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show, Laura. Um, so, you know, this quote is one that is really popular and really well loved by a lot of health justice activists. And what I wanted to do was just share its historical context. So it was said by Dr. King in 1966, and it was actually to protest the American Medical Association at the time, whom he and the Committee for Human Rights um, felt that they were not doing enough for racial justice in America at the time. 
And it was uh, just to kind of, you know, I mean, draw out that picture some more. In 1965, Medicare was passed into law, was signed by uh, President Lyndon Johnson. And in the spring of 1966, the majority of American hospitals were still segregated. And this is despite the uh, Civil Rights Act being passed in 1964. And so when you have the Civil Rights Movement looking at Medicare, they wanted to make sure that hospitals that got this new funding through the Medicare program were going to abide by um, the civil rights laws and all of our the racial justice legislation that had been passed up to that point. And so because Dr. King worked with health justice activists at the time, between the, the spring and the summer of 1966, they managed to get, I mean, the overwhelming majority of hospitals in America desegregated. And so if you were a hospital in the country that was going to be accepting Medicare funds, you could no longer practice segregation in your patient wards, in the, in the workplace. You had to start showing that you were hiring more people of color in your workplace. And so there's a deep connection between Medicare and how it was implemented and the Civil Rights Act. And I feel that there is a lot that we can learn from that in our situation today. So what do you uh, see uh, that uh, people can do right now? Uh, is there anything that we can do to help make for a more just system of healthcare in America? So I think that there's, um, there's a lot to be aware of that. You know, I think that that's a good starting point. One of the things that the COVID-19 pandemic has taught us is that this has not been a pandemic where we have necessarily been in it all together with the same amount of risk and with the same amount of suffering and pain. Um, my Black and Latinx patients have been uh, two to three times more likely to be infected and pass away from COVID-19. And that has nothing to do with their biology. That has everything to do with the obstacle courses that we've created in American healthcare. And even before you get to those obstacle courses, we have to look at how did people get you know, targeted by this virus? And only uh, when you look at the number of workers who had to leave their home to go to work because they working from home was simply not an option, um, four out of five, five out of six uh, Black and Latinx workers had no other choice but to leave their home, which was actually the best protection that we had against COVID-19 when the pandemic first started. And they had no other choice but to go, go to work. And that in and of itself, you know, creates a disproportionate burden. And so we need to kind of ask ourselves, if we are, if we are a business owner listening to this program, what is your paid sick leave policy? Have you worked with your Department of Labor in your state to build a, a sick leave policy if you've never had one before? Um, there are supports out there at the state and federal level, but it does require that we make that effort to know that things like paid sick leave, though it might not sound like it's anything connected to racial justice, actually does contribute to you know, um, 
narrowing some of these disparities in uh, in the way we experience COVID. And I've heard the phrase social determinants of health. Uh, people may have heard that or read that. What does what does that mean? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. That's um, some public health jargon that is actually pretty easy to understand because we all live it. What it means is that our health outcomes and our health experiences are deeply connected to things that are nece- that are not always within our control. Um, we don't always get to you know choose the entire cleanliness of the apartment building that we live in. Um, many of us cannot afford to live in areas that are away from uh, environmental pollution. Uh, Many of us are struggling with the quality of the schools that we go to or the wages that we're paid. And all of those factors are connected to our health outcomes because they do end up impacting our individual choices. It does, you know, kind of cut off healthier choices from people and leaves them with a narrower, not so great set of choices in which they have to feed their family, clothe themselves, try to buy prescriptions, try to pay rent, try to keep the heat on. All of those, all of those factors kind of combine in a, in a complex web that we call social determinants of health that impact each and every one of us. Like living in a food desert or living in an area without enough parks, uh, not being able to go outside and get fresh air. Right. So, you know, a lot of um, a lot of the you may have heard of, uh, you know, pre-existing conditions that set people up for, you know, worse experiences with COVID. Well, a lot of those pre-existing conditions, whether they're high blood pressure, diabetes, asthma, they're not necessarily all due to individual choices or lack of choices in health. A lot of it is because if you're living in an area that is just off of a highway or freeway, your air quality is not your choice. Mm -hmm. You are breathing whatever is available to you. And if it's a setup for asthma, then yeah, like when something like COVID comes along, it's going to compound a greater health risk. And so all of those things that, you know, those factors combine to, you know, to kind of impact health in ways that maybe not all of us individually can, you know, can control, but all of us individually can vote for better policies, can, you know, be on the lookout for things that might improve our health, like better labeling of nutrition. When our stores are offering healthier choices, we should be asking, are all of the stores and all of the branches, you know, offering the same things? These are all like, you know, those nuanced choices that can um, make a big difference. Diane, what are you thinking? Yeah, I was um, thinking that in addition to the social determinants of health um, needing to be addressed in a major way, as you've described, Sanjeev, sort of getting back to health insurance, what I always say is that we ration care based on ability to pay at the individual level, that we talk about choice in healthcare, but not only are people forced to make health insurance choices that may not meet their needs because they can't afford a particular choice, um, but even once they have insurance, um, if they get really sick, what we've done is we've we've transferred the burden, the financial and administrative burden onto the people who are sickest and the people um, who may not have means and who are sick are at a loss to even get 
health care with health insurance. And I wondered if you could speak to that. Yeah, what, uh, what you're describing is the gap that we have between care and coverage, right? That you can have coverage and then there can be a lot of obstacles in between, you, you know, that coverage and getting the care that you need. Um, great example of this, I used to be a pediatrician in Washington, D.C., in southeast Washington, D.C., if you compare how um, mom's health, like when they were first giving birth in Southeast DC compared to Northwest DC, you would see that, I mean, these huge differences. And DC is not this giant state like California or Texas. It's a very small city, but you would see these huge differences in black and white um, maternal health outcomes. And a lot of, and but yet, if you look at DC as a whole, it's it does a great job at insuring a ton of people. I mean, a lot of people are insured in DC. But what makes a difference there is that there is, at the time that I remember working there, there was not a labor and delivery ward in Southeast DC. Those moms had to go across town to George Washington, to Georgetown, to the MedStar Northwest. And that, depending on the commute, depending on, you know, how traffic is looking and what your ability to mobilize was, can be, a, I mean, a really difficult thing to just get across the river to go and get your regular prenatal care, much less go and deliver in a part of town that isn't necessarily your own community. And so it's, it's just an example that we see happening again and again and again across the country that... Where people need healthcare isn't always where we're doing the best at funding it, keeping the you know our workers um, you know working there happy, well trained, well staffed. Those are all big challenges that we are facing. Even though we're doing a better and better job of ensuring more and more people, mm-hmm. and we also see that in rural areas too, right? There's huge uh, gaps where there there are no doctors or uh, hospitals available for people. Yeah, and I would say that you know the the states that expanded Medicaid under the ACA did a, a better job of of keeping those hospitals in rural areas open because Medicaid opened up a lot more funding. And so there's still a chance that, you know, for this, at least for the sake of keeping rural hospitals open, that our remaining holdouts um, you know, against Medicaid expansion would take up the, you know, the, I mean, this moment um, to, you know, work with the ACA and get some funding to those hospitals. But the same uh, private equity firms that are undermining the strength of Medicare through DCEs are also, you know, they're getting their claws into a lot of struggling hospitals in rural communities and in um, in urban areas that are really struggling. And they're not always looking after people's, you know, people's health or the public health interests at large. They're really putting the dollar first. And so it it really does require that each and every one of us pay closer attention to where do hospitals get their funding, are they you know, getting the support that they need? And what options do they have? And these are all issues that I'm hoping that our individual members of Congress are understanding about their own backyard of health care. Zoid, what are you thinking? Yeah, I so... Mean, oh, yeah, go sorry, ahead. go ahead. Oh, I just one of the things that I often think about um, in regards to health equity is one of the first steps is identifying where the inequities are and you know the populations and communities that are most impacted. And that's often, you know, made more difficult by the fact that, you know, for example, people who are disabled might have worse health health outcomes because of their disability, 
but they may also have additional barriers to actually getting health insurance, having a job, um, getting to the doctor, and then getting appropriate care from a doctor, as opposed to, you know, we have heard stories of, you know, people being dismissed simply because of their disability or their weight um, and not having their issues taken seriously. So I guess, you know, how do we kind of identify and tease out all of these different components that, you know, go into health equity? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. And it's uh, it's a really complicated one. Um, you know, one of the things that I would start asking, and I hope that the pandemic has started triggering better questions in people about what purpose do certain elements of our healthcare system serve? Um, a great example of that is means testing, right? You were alluding to, you know, people's income levels being a barrier to, you know, uh, getting coverage, getting care. And one of the first things that, you know, determines what kind of insurance you have is your income. What do you do for a living? Now, should that really matter? Like, that's a, it, it's a really good question to ask ourselves in the middle of a pandemic that coronavirus doesn't really care what you earn or what you, you know, do for a living. Yes, there are workplaces that are at greater risk for coronavirus, but in general, biologically, you know, the virus does not care what you earn or, you know, it isn't really like doing any means testing before it infects you. Um, the same is true for any number of conditions. You know, I mean, seizures don't really check to make sure you can afford a seizure disorder before you develop one. And so we have to start, I think, asking ourselves, what is it that means testing, asking a person's income level, financial resources, um, you know, pay stubs, you know, bank statements, what do all these things serve? Like, what do, what do they mean for us in healthcare? Do they serve a purpose? And if they don't, then why do we keep holding on to them? Are we really afraid that undeserving people might get healthcare and this is our way of putting a stop to that? And if that's the case, why? Why do we worry about undeserving people getting healthcare if healthcare is truly a human right? If we're not supposed to be you know, I mean, checking every like financial and moral fiber of a person before we deliver care to them, because Lord knows I don't when I, you know, when I'm practicing medicine. So what purpose do our systems have when they constantly create these obstacle courses? And isn't it enough just to be human to get health care? And to pay taxes, you know, to be part of society. And we're all paying in and Medicare is a social insurance program, health care should be socially insured so that everybody gets what they need and cost isn't an issue. You know, we all put into society to the extent we can, and then we all need, as you say, to get treated with the health care we need. Right. And I mean, if there's anything that we've learned, right, is that, I mean, how much have we learned about essential workers who we've been taking for granted for decades even now, when we go to the grocery store and we see that, you know, I mean, things are just not stocked because workers are getting sick and it, you know, it's hard to, you know, keep those supply chains moving, to keep deliveries moving, to keep the, you know, to keep our, our inventory stocked. And all of that is each and every one of those issues is a person issue that that was a person who needed health care that I mean, you know, the truck driver the person stocking the, you know, I mean, the, the groceries, like each and every one of these people, by virtue of being human, 
needs healthcare, and and them you know not having it is obviously impacting all of our health when it comes to our nutrition, our food choices, our ability to get around, and so. I would hope that this pandemic gives us a renewed sense of interconnectedness that helps us reevaluate this fragmentation in American healthcare and just, you know, dig into those moral questions of like, what does the fragment serve? And if it doesn't, then let's be bold enough to, you know, to try something new. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because this pandemic has shown that we are all in this together and you may only be as healthy as your healthiest neighbor. So thank you very much, uh, Dr. America, for sharing your thoughts with us today. Uh, Thank you everybody for watching Care Talk. If you have healthcare questions, be sure to call or text in those questions and we will answer them on a future episode. And thank you for listening to Care Talk. We'll be back next week.